I was thinking this week that we need to become a more liberal church. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines liberal in an adjectival sense as this, someone who is marked by generosity. You see, I think our church needs to become a more liberal church. See, at Compass, we must strive in every way possible to be exceptional examples of the lavish generosity of God. I mean, that is our, our goal and our expectation that we would reflect in every way possible the glory of our God. I mean, that is the whole reason why we as Christians have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so it's important for us in our own lives to commit to generous living. And that is the title this morning in, in our sermon is that we, when it comes to teamwork, need to all be on the same page when it comes to generous living. Right? To be a Christian is to be generous. Right? It's synonymous. Right? To be a Christian is to be generous. Anyone who lacks generosity lacks semblance of true faith in Christ. Did we hear that this morning? And that is why the Bible gives us so much so much in, in the realm and of the theme of generosity. Now, if you're in here and you're holding tight to your wallet, I'm not talking about your money today. We already took the offering, right? All that's, we're not even talking about that. We're just talking about your life has to be generous. The way that you live your life as, as a believer it says so much about you when it comes to your generosity, this morning, Colossians 4 tells us three ways we need to be more generous at Compass. And so if you haven't already, I want you to flip over to Colossians 4. Colossians 4. We are at, only got two more sermons left. We have this one and next week, and we're done with the letter to the Colossians. Isn't that exciting? We got through a whole book of the Bible here in the life of our young church. I'd love for you, whatever you have with you, that you would flip open to Colossians 4. We want you to take notes. We, we trust that you're going to not only sit here and listen to the sermon this morning, but you're going to take it home, and you're even going to answer the application questions on the back so you would grow throughout the week in your faith and not just here on a Sunday morning. So we've got three ways to be more generous, and these aren't three ways that I come up with. These are three things in, in the text that are going to be very important to us that informs our own generosity. And the first thing you need to know is that generosity takes a, a personal sacrifice. There's a personal element, a personal sacrificial element to the generosity of the believer. And, and I want you to first look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says, Epaphras, who was one of you, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, and he greets you. All right, something we need to know. Epaphras, if you remember, if you've been here long enough, he, he was a church planter there in the Lycus Valley, most likely was led to Christ by Paul in Ephesus. And after he got led to Christ by Paul, he's been discipled a bit, he gets sent back to Colossae. And, and what does Colossae to Epaphras well, it says there, he is one of you. I mean, it's, it's Epaphras' hometown. I mean, I mean, that's where he lived. That's where his home was. That's where he did his life. And, and Paul's reminding the, the church in Colossae and, and those in the Lycus Valley that Epaphras, he's one of you guys. Uh, but here's what sets Christ apart. Or, sorry, here's who sets Epaphras apart in the life of the Lycus Valley. There's something that sets Epaphras apart 
in the Lycus Valley, and it's this one word that I would love for you to underline in your Bible, and it says this, that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. You've been here long enough, we, we render this word in the Greek, it's the word doulos, which the English word for doulos is slave. And so it's important for you to know that uh, when Paul's talking about Epaphras in relationship to Christ, he's saying that Epaphras is a, a slave of Christ. Which means this, when it comes to generosity, there is nothing that Epaphras wouldn't do for Christ. As a matter of fact, he's owned by him. And so when it comes to who he is as a person, it all belongs to Christ. He's, he's generous with his life because it all belongs not to him, but to Christ. We just, we just sing a song, yet not I, but Christ. Right? I mean, that's the idea of being owned by Christ. It's the idea of being a, a slave, a servant of Christ, is that my generosity knows no ends because the generosity of Christ has known no ends. Right? We understand that that word slave means that Epaphras has literally given himself over to Christ. Right? A lot of us aren't willing to go very far for anyone, uh, but we have to understand to be a Christian means all of you is all of his, every bit of you. I mean, there is nothing withheld from Christ when we become Christians. Right? He has been purchased and no longer his own. We've said this multiple times. You, you realize that some of the things that we love about the Christian faith in the New Testament uh, are things like this. When, when, when the writers of the New Testament say, you have been bought with a price. You've been purchased. Right? You are, you are, you, God bought you and purchased you. You realize that's slave language. Right? It's slave language. Like you, you aren't yours. You've been bought. The very things that you hold on to are the very truths that you've got to realize what that means. Right, the context that you can't be plucked out of Christ's hand is because he owns you. Every bit of you is, is his. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Like you are not your own. I mean, when it comes to generosity, I think there's the fundamental fact that you have to understand is you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. For you were bought with a price. Right? And I, even talking about sacrifice and, and the personal sacrifice is you were bought with a price because of the personal sacrifice of Christ. So when you keep thinking about what does it mean for me to be, to be generous, what does it mean for me to, to give of myself, you don't have to look any further than Christ. You don't have to look any further than Jesus who gave himself for us. What does it cost? What is the personal sacrifice that it takes for generosity? And it's, it's your life. And that's what it costs us. That's what it costs Christ. Generosity takes our, our whole life. There's something else that Epaphras does that I think is very telling about the generosity that even he has to the churches in the Lycus Valley. And it continues in verse 12. Uh, this Epaphras, he greets you. A servant of Christ, he greets you. And he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Another word I want you to underline, the word struggling. Underline that word there, struggling. That word struggling comes from the Greek word agonizomai. Did you hear that? Agonizomai. It's where we get the English word agony. Right? And so we have to understand, even in the, in the, when it comes to personal sacrifice, even the way that Epaphras is praying for the churches causes him personal sacrifice. Even the way that he is engaging and thinking and the prayer lives of, of those in the Lycus Valley, he's saying this is painful. It hurts. He's given so much of himself to prayer that it is causing consternation in his own life. Some personal sacrifice of his time, of his mental capacity, of his emotional capacity, all those things are being used up for the good of the church. 
agonizomai. He, he was in even agony, even in the prayers that he was praying. And they weren't just empty prayers. We're not just throwing up some prayers here. I mean, the prayers were for a purpose. And I want you to see the purpose of his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I love that because so much of our Christian faith is very mystical. It's very, and what I mean by this is not that all the faith is mystical in the Scriptures. You try to make it mystical, right? You try to make it ethereal. And what is the will of God? Who knows the will of God? Well, we know the will of God. That you would be mature and, and fully assured in all the things that God wants us to do as Christians. So that is, I mean, that is the least mystical thing you could ever do and think about in your life. I mean, it's so in concrete. You know what God wants in your life? He wants you to be mature. He wants you to know His will. And His will is that you would be matured and that you would grow in Him. And that's exactly what Epaphras is struggling about in his prayer life for the Colossians in those churches in the Lycus Valley. And Paul does something else when he's writing about uh, Epaphras. Is he connects another word to that word agonizomai, and you see it in verse 13. Look at verse 13. All right, he's... He's a slave of Christ. That means he's fully given himself over in, in, in a, a full life of generosity towards the ministry of Christ. He's, he's agonizing in his prayer life over the churches. And in verse 13, Paul says, I bear witness with him that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. And another word I want you to underline, the third one, is worked. That word worked. We're doing a little Greek word study this morning. I think it's going to be helpful for you to understand what it means to be, to be generous. Right? That word there, ponos. Right? And it's, it means this. It's not just worked. It's not just, oh, I did a job. The word ponos comes with a, a distinctive ending, and that is this, that it's work that is accompanied with pain. I mean, that's why he used this word and not another word, because he's saying it's work, but it's work that comes with a sacrifice. It's work that, that entails a little bit of pain, and when Paul says this, he's like, listen, he's been agonizing on your behalf in his prayers. He's a slave of Christ, and he has worked painstakingly hard for you. And not just for you in Colossae, but for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. When we read this, it shouldn't take us long to get to the fact that we need to do this, and it's point number one on your outline. You need to be more generous with yourself. You need to be more generous with yourself. Now, I didn't say be more generous to yourself. I think you're too generous to yourself, right? I think we're all too generous with ourselves. I'm saying you need to be more generous with yourself, with you as an individual. Your, your, your person needs to be more generous to others. In the context here, to the church, right? Not to the institution. I'm not talking about the 30,000 square foot building here on 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive. I'm talking about the church as the people, the called out people here in New Braunfels. You need to be more generous with yourself to those. And why can I tell you that? Because you get to understand who you are in the context of Christ. And who we are in the context of knowing Christ is the same exact thing that Epaphras was. And that is a slave of Christ. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so the only response, the only proper response to Christ is generosity, is a life of generosity. And you have to understand when it comes to generosity, when it comes to you giving your life to Christ, uh, of course in a salvific manner, but even with a, with, a, with a faithful manner of how you live the rest of your life, you have to understand that generosity comes by knowing your position in Christ. Can I have you write down a, a verse? I want you to write down this verse. Luke 17. I want to have you flip to it because we don't have nearly enough time. Luke 17, 
starting in verse 7. I mean, this is, what Jesus, this is a parable that Jesus was saying, and it, it, it informs our understanding of generosity in the context of being owned by Christ. This is what it says, starting in verse 7. And it's through verse 10, if you want to put that note down. Will any one of you who has a servant, there's a doulos, there's that word doulos, so it's slave, right? Any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, would you say to him when he has come in from your field, when he's done all of his work for the day out in the field, and he's still got more work to do at home, but he's done all the work of the field, are you going to tell him, hey, come at once and recline at my table? So he's saying, hey, you've done half of your work, you're out in the field, but then you've got to come do some more domestic duties. You've got to come in the house and you've got work to do here at the home. But are you, as, as, the, as, as the boss, going to say, no, come on in, recline, kick up your feet, you know, you just kick up your feet and I'm going to cook you dinner. Verse 8, will he not rather say, will the boss rather not say this, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Well, basically this, you have work to do. You have some more work to do. And after you're done with your work, then you can come and you can rest. You can kick up your feet and you can have dinner and drink and relax right, in proper order. Now, verse 9. Does he, think, does he thank the servant because he did what he, what he was commanded? What, did the boss look at the servant and say, thank you so much for doing everything you were asked to do? Right? Thank you for doing your job. Right? No, no, this is instead what it says. So you, also when you have done all that you were commanded, here's what you are ought to say. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus said that. Right? Jesus said that. Right? Jesus said, at the end of the day, when you have done all the things that you were supposed to do in your life, you don't look up and say, Jesus, look what I did today for you. Right? I gave my entire Sunday to you. I know Monday through Saturday is all mine, but I gave my Sunday to you. Jesus saying, listen, I own you. You're mine. And at the end of the day, however much is going on in your life, whatever you're doing, here is your response. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Why are we generous as Christians? Because it's our job. We're generous because it's our job. And at the end of the day, we've only done what was our job. See, the problem becomes when we're not generous Christians and we haven't done our job. You see, that's what generosity isn't, a, uh, isn't an option Right? It's the rule of being a Christian. The rule is that I'm a generous person, and I'm a generous person because I'm owned by Christ. And since I'm owned by Christ, I'm just an unworthy servant doing what was my duty. Right? And if you're going to balk this morning at saying, well, I'm not an unworthy servant, you sure are. I am too. Right? I am the most unworthy servant that has ever existed on planet Earth. And here's why. I did not deserve the grace and mercy of Christ who gave himself up, who stepped out of heaven, came down here, and gave himself up for me. I, there is no one more unworthy for that favor and that merit than I am. So if, if we ever think that we're above generosity, if we ever think that we're a, a, above this idea of being unworthy servants, you've got to understand where you stood in relationship with God your entire life before you met Jesus Christ. We're, we're all unworthy servants. And when we uh, meet the grace and the mercy and the love and, and, I dare you, the holiness of God, we recognize those things very quickly. But the problem sometimes in our Christian life is we notice it in a moment, but we get a couple years down in, in our lives and, and years after our, our conversion, we forget some of those things. And you have to do something in your faith of utmost importance. You can't forget where you came from. Right? And you can't forget that you've, you were an unworthy person 
from the grace and the mercy of Christ. And now you're just an unworthy servant of the grace and mercy of Christ. The difference is you were unworthy to receive it. You've now received it because of the grace and mercy of God. Now you're still unworthy, but you're an unworthy servant. You're an unworthy person who's been bought and purchased by Christ. You see the difference there. Now with that becomes this responsibility for me to be generous, for me to give of myself. And it is painful. I mean, that is the whole point here, right? That it, you, to be more generous with yourself, it comes with personal sacrifice. And there's always a degree of pain associated with generosity. That's why people don't do it. I think about uh, when, you, when you give money to people. Right? When you give money, I'm not just talking about 20 bucks. We all have 20 bucks in our wallet. But I'm saying when somebody needs something and you hand over four digits worth of money, five digits worth of money, uh, you think, whew, that hurt a little bit, didn't you? you know, that was... That was, that was a lot. And there's pain associated with it, not just because you're, you're getting, giving money to someone, but because you're also thinking, well, I could have done something with that money. I guess I can't go do that anymore. I guess I can't go on that vacation anymore. Well, I guess I can't go buy that new phone anymore. I mean, I mean, there is pain associated with you being generous, but that is what the Christian faith is. I mean, we understand that. It's in the text, right? It says, yes, it's going to be a personal sacrifice. You're going to struggle. You're going to work as to be accompanied with pain. If you're not with me yet, I want you to think of the last time you helped someone move, right? Somebody called you and said, hey, I'm moving. Uh, I need your help, all right? And I got, I got the heaviest dishwasher and the heaviest washer and dryer that you've ever seen in your life. And I, got, I got a couch that was made in 1810, all right? It's going to be a little agonizing to help move, isn't it? I mean, there's going to be some pain associated with your generosity, and all I'm saying is you don't think about it that way. And when the Bible brings it up, you kind of get, you, you get a little bit struck. Like, why? Well, because that's what generosity is. That's what it looks like in your life to be generous. And that's why people don't want to be generous. And I'm saying, what was the pain associated with the generosity of Christ? Oh, right. Why do we think that there shouldn't be pain associated with our generosity? Now, why do I even bring that up? Because I think sometimes we think we're generous because we go to that point before pain and before discomfort, and we say, people understand that I didn't go extra because it would hurt. I mean, it's too painful to go the extra mile, to, to spend the extra dollar, to take the extra step. That is what it means to be a Christian, is to go through the discomfort to go over and above and beyond, because that's what it means to be a Christian. So I, I do. I need to be more generous with myself, and it's going to come at a personal cost. That's the first thing. The second thing you, you need to know is that your stuff right, should be used to glorify God. You, you understand that yourself needs to be used to glorify God. Yourself needs to be more, more generous, but it doesn't stop at yourself. It doesn't stop at, at, at you, your, your, your humanity, right? your mind, your intellect, your will, your muscles. It doesn't stop there. It continues when it comes to our stuff. There's a woman mentioned in this text of the name of Nympha. And Nympha is really special, although she's not mentioned any other place in the New Testament. She's mentioned here, and for a very, very good reason. Look at verse 15. It says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. I love this because in the first century, there were no church buildings. You, re you realize that, right? In the first century, there were no church buildings. And so when the church had to gather, they had to gather in a public place, or they had to gather in someone's home. Now, in the, towards the end of the first century, end of the second century, and in the third century, it was almost impossible for Christians to meet in public because persecution was so high. 
I mean, to even be associated with Christians would get you killed. And so it was so important that, that people of some means would allow their stuff to become God's stuff, right? And I, I want to clarify that in a moment, but what you need to know is that Nympha saw a need and she met a need. She was a woman of means because she had a place big enough. And, and you, may, you may realize that, hey, is there a house in here we can come where all these people can come meet this morning? Next week, we're going to your house. Could, could, could you make sure you take some, some time to get the home ready next week for our 350 plus people across two services? Right, you get the point, right? I mean, the point is, uh, it's hard, and it takes means to create an opportunity for the church to gather in, in a home. And Nympha said, you know what? I see a need. I need to meet a need. I realize uh, that there's a church that needs a place. And so Paul even writes, I want to give my greetings to Nympha and the church that she has so graciously allowed her home uh, to, to, to worship, to gather, to fellowship, to do discipleship. And, and that's what I'm saying here. Is like she allowed her things to be God's things. But what I want to qualify this to say is she didn't allow her things to be God th- God's things. She just recognized a fundamental universal truth, and that is this. She recognized that her things were really God's things, that her things were never her things to begin with. And so I think it takes two steps to get to this point. Number one, you need to realize that it does take you using your stuff for God. But then after you, when you're doing it, you've got to realize that there's never your stuff to begin with. It was all God's stuff all along. I mean, everything that you have is, is God's stuff. And God used her generosity to do his will. I love that. Because you have the church meeting in a home because of Nympha, and she's in the Bible. I mean, think about that. She's in the Bible because she said, I'm going to be generous with my stuff. Right? If she would have been like, no, you guys are too messy. Right? What about those kids? You cannot, you're not bringing kids into my house. Right? You are, you are not doing it. They're going to tear up everything. I'm going to have to do touch-up paint. Right? Uh, your dog, absolutely not your dog, those smelly things. Right? I mean, but that's what we do, isn't it? How many kids are coming? Mm, eight? Mm, can't do it, right? You giggle because that's what we think when people are coming over. I can only have 20 people in my house because I have added up in my math that that's how many people can come to my house before people start breaking things. Right? But Nympha said, you know what? God, it's yours. If you want to break it, break it. If you want to use it, use it. I want to glorify you through it. And God used her things to do his will. And what we can rest assured, because we know the church in Colossae was growing, the church in the Lycus Valley was growing, because of her generosity, people were saved, and God built his church in the Lycus Valley. Isn't that, isn't that something? Isn't that something that, that her generosity served the church in, in a larger capacity? And it brings me to point number two. I want you to write it this way on your outline. You need to be more generous with your stuff. Right? Be more generous with your stuff. I know, I'm stepping on your toes, but my toes too. It's not me, it's the Bible. Be more generous with your stuff. Another uh, verse I want you to write down. A lot of verses today, not a lot of time, but a lot of verses. I want you to jot this down. Very familiar story, an account of something that you know very well. John 6, 9 through 14. Jot that down. John 6, 9 through 14. It's talking about the feeding the 5,000. It's John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. We're talking about being more generous with yourself, with your stuff. Right? There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? I mean, there's a little boy. He's just, he just packed his lunch. He was just going out. He was going by the sea to hang out and have a little lunch by, by, the, by the sea. 
And, and there's all these people, and there's Jesus there with his disciples. There's all these people being taught the word of God, and the little boy's been caught up in, in the masses, uh, and they're like, well, what are we going to do? We've got to feed all these people. And Jesus said, here's what you're going to do. Have the people sit down. Now, there was a lot of grass, and, and so the men sit down, about 5,000 men, and that's just the men, that's not counting the women and children, and so the numbers of this could have been anywhere between ten and 20,000 people out there in the grass just sitting around. And so Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. What are you talking about? I thought there were only five pieces of poor man's bread, because that's what five barley loaves is, and two dried fish. But it says here that they gave them all that they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, I mean, they got full. I mean, this wasn't all of us eating crackers. And then afterwards, we're like, man, I can't wait to go to dinner after this. I mean, in verse 12, it says, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftovers. You mean I'm full and there's leftovers? You mean I got everything I wanted? 20,000 people got everything they wanted, and then there's more? Wow. Right? And he said, gather up the leftovers that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left and by those who had eaten. Pay attention to this. When the people saw the sign that they had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Not a prophet, There was a prophet, big P prophet, that people were looking for to come to save and to prophesy and to to usher in the coming realities of of the truth of, of uh, of Israel's promised king and Messiah. So I'm not saying little P. We're not saying, hey, well, this is just Isaiah or John the Baptist. Big P. Look in your text, in your Bible. Does it have a big P or a little P? Big P. Because it's not just a prophet. It's the prophet. Right? It's, this is the one. It's like saying this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the man who's coming. And, and here's what that boy's generosity, even if he said he had so little, served this purpose. When the people saw it, they said, here he is. Right? I don't want to overstate something in the Scripture, but I think it's worth pointing out. The boy had a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. And he allowed his little to be used a lot. Right? He allowed himself to be greatly beneficial to the kingdom of God. And here's what God did with it. Expanded it, made it more. Right? He, God took what was there, and he took it, and he multiplied it, and he did his will, and the people glorified God. The principle is that your stuff ought to be used to glorify God. Your stuff ought to be used to give God the glory. And you have so much stuff. I had a statistic. I had it written down. I have it off the top of my mind. Uh, The average household income worldwide is $10,000. Okay, When we're talking about means, and we're talking about your means, you are some of the richest people in the history of the world. From a societal standpoint, we are the richest society in the history of the world. And yet God could do so little with five loaves and two fish. Imagine how much he can do with the richest society in the history of the world. And I'm just saying you need to be more generous with your stuff. Many of you have retirement plans, but no generosity plan. Right? Is that a little convicting? Right? You're planning for your own generous self when you're at retirement age, but you're not planning for generosity here. Right? You have a will, right? You have a will. So you're going to will where your stuff goes. 
but you've never prayed about where God wills that your stuff goes. Right? Well, I'm saying you've made all these plans for generosity for yourself and for some people you love, but you've never made a generosity plan for what God wants you to be generous for and generous with. I just encourage you, look and make a generosity plan. Look at your will. Look at your budget. Look at the stuff you have in your house right now. Look at everything you have and ask, God, how would you use these things for, for your glory? How would you use these things for your will to bring about salvation in New Braunfels, to bring about opportunities for people to be discipled in New Braunfels? I'm saying, how can you be more generous with your stuff? The final thing you need to know the third thing is that biblical generosity has a kingdom mindset. It has a kingdom mindset. It's not just about Compass Bible Church here in New Braunfels. It's not. It's not just about us. I mean, God's doing stuff all over the world, and it's important for you to know. There are three churches explicitly mentioned in verse 13. Uh, they're going to help us understand God's plan for generosity. Remember, Epaphras was the church planter in the Lycus Valley, right? He planted the church in Laodicea, the church in Colossae, the church in Heropolis. He was involved with the church in Ephesus because that's where he got saved. And so you all see there's all these churches involved in the kingdom expansion there in Asia Minor. But Epaphras had a special care and attention for a few churches. And those churches mentioned there in verse 13, he was careful to nurture each one through their infancy into their maturity. That's the reason we have this letter. This letter that's being passed around to these churches was because Epaphras, perhaps either visiting Paul or in prison with Paul, is saying, Paul, I, I, I'm hoping that these people grow. I want these people to grow. My biggest agonizing prayer is that they would grow mature in their faith. And he said, can you please write to them? You're the, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. They'll listen to you, Paul. They trust you, Paul. Can you write a letter to them? I care about them so much. And he wrote this letter, which is important for you, right? When, when you see the need uh, for multiplication, and that's what they saw here, multiplication. What does that mean? This idea that we have us, and it's just not us. We got more to do. There's more going on. We got more things that we need to do as a church. And we're not done here when this church gets off and running. It just begins with us, right? And, and Epaphras saw that, and, and, Paul, and Paul saw that. Paul didn't just focus on one individual church. I want you to look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 in Colossians 4. And Paul says, And when this letter, the letter to the Colossians, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Did you see that? Did that blow your mind a little bit? Right? Did you know that they did that in the early church? Right? When there was a, what they call a circulatory letter, right? and it was a letter that was meant for a regional church. It was a letter that was meant to be passed around the Lycus Valley. And, and here Paul's saying, listen, I love the church of Colossae. I got something to say to them. But I just don't have something to say to them. I have something to say to the church in Laodicea. I have something to say to the church in Heropolis. I have something to say to the church in Ephesus. And as a matter of fact, right now he's in Rome because he had something to say to the church in Rome. I mean, the disciples, the disciples' mindset as they were going out in the early stages of Acts, the apostles', uh, the apostles perspective was we got to go reach as many people as possible. we got to go plant as many churches as possible. we got to get out there because this is about God's kingdom, not my own. And so we had these circulatory letters that were floating around because they saw the need not to just focus in on one congregation, 
Because if they were going to focus on one congregation, they would have all stayed in Jerusalem because there was a robust church in Jerusalem and say it could all stay there. But that wasn't the plan. That wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to reach all the nations. But here's a problem. Right? Paul and the local church leaders knew the mission extended further than Colossae, but it explicitly included Colossae. Can, can you look at me for a minute? This is going to be really important for our application. Right. The mission is more than compass, but it explicitly includes compass. Did you hear me? Okay. And here's why that's important, because there are two, perhaps three problems in the church today. Three problems that we're going to have to address when it comes to generosity, when it comes to our involvement. Problem A is this. You have people out there, my generation is the world's worst at this, they say, I'm here for the big C church, right? I'm here for the global church. I'm here for all, I love God's kingdom mindset that he's for all the churches, right? I'm here for the big C church, but not the local church. Like, are you, do you go to church somewhere? Well, no, I'm part of the big C church, you know, the global church. Like, what does that even mean? What do you mean by that? You have people say, you know what, I love the global church. On on Tuesdays, I go to this church. On Wednesday nights, I go to this church. On Sunday mornings, I go to this church. On Sunday evenings, I go to... I'm just a member of the global church. Then why are every one of these letters written to local congregations? Why are all of these letters addressing specific scenarios? And when they want the letter passed on, they explicitly say it. Hey, can you send this letter to them? They need to apply this to their life now. Why is local church leadership in the New Testament the standard for church leadership? You have the apostles who, as they were old and dying, made sure they sent pastors to all the churches to oversee the churches. They didn't, they didn't come from this apostolic secession to where now the apostles are now reigning over all the churches in the world. If you grow, grow up Catholic, you're going to say, wow, yeah, okay, that's what the Pope does. It is what the Pope does, but that isn't what we're called to do. Okay, we have a responsibility. That's what Paul said to Titus, right, in the letter to Titus. Go to Crete, put what remains out of order into order, and put overseers, pastors in all the churches. I mean, the focus in the New Testament is on the local church. At least, it has to be on one hand. The focus is on the local church. And if you're not a part of a local church, even if you're here this morning, you've got to realize that God's plan is the local church. It's problem A. Right? People say, I'm here for the big church and not for the, for the local church. Problem B, and this one is pervasive because people are so insular. Right? I'm here for my church, but not the global church. Right? I'm here for my church. Don't talk, and, and you, these kind of people are the world's worst about bad-mouthing the church down the road, the church in the other city, the church where they came from. And what I'm saying is don't bad-mouth the bride of Christ. Right? Don't you dare. You say something bad about my wife, we're going to have problems. Imagine saying something about God's wife. Both of these are, are wrong because at the end of the day, it's a both and, it's not an either or, right? It's a both and, that we belong to the local church, right? The global church is expressed through the local church, right? You can't be a part of the global church if you're not a part of a local church. I mean, that's just a true biblical New Testament principle. You have to be a part of the local church. But we're also here, even as we see the New Testament playing out, that we're here for the global church, Right? We're here in New Braunfels right now because a church a thousand miles away, which ironically is about how far Rome was away from Colossae, there was a church a thousand miles away in Aliso Viejo that said, I think that New Braunfels needs a Bible teaching church. Who would like to go? Right? They had a kingdom mindset to say they need the gospel over there. 
They need a Bible teaching church over there, right? There was a kingdom mindset, but it came out of the local church. It started in the local church, and it belongs in the local church, and it extends to the global church. That's why I'm telling you, and it's point number three on your outline, you need to be more generous towards God's kingdom. Be more generous towards God's kingdom. Because there's a third problem. And if you don't keep that in mind, to be more generous towards God's kingdom, you never, you never deal with this problem. Because a mistake, another mistake Christians often make is to believe that the church is not God's plan A for the salvation of the world. There's, there's so many of us that we don't invest in the church because we're saying, what good is it? What, what is it doing? You know, what needs is it meeting? Well, biblically, it's meeting the greatest need in the universe, and that is our problem with the holy God. And I want to focus on that because so many of us, and statistically, you go to, you go to all of the, the, the research and the study that's being done, uh, money in giving has gone down in the local church and has gone up in nonprofits. Because there are people who belong to their church and said, I think the nonprofits are going to do more with money and my stuff for the good of society. Christ literally said that I'm going to come and I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. There is not another institution ever in the history of the world that is going to prove more fruitful and faithful than the local church. And the problem that we come to is we expect these other organizations, these other nonprofits to exact spiritual renewal that belongs solely and unequivocally to the local church. That's a problem, church, right? It's a problem when people are looking outside the church for spiritual renewal that literally was founded and exists solely for and to the local church. This is why you have to be both local church-minded and global church-minded, because it belongs to us, but it is our job to take spiritual renewal, that is the gospel and the proper response to the gospel, out to the nations, There is nothing you should be investing more of your time and your money and your energy in than God's church. And it's not just because I'm the pastor up here. I'm a pastor up here because I internalize that truth in my own life. Because I realize, hey, there is not another thing in the world I need to give my life to more than this, the local church. Because this this is literally what Jesus said, I'm here for this. And whatever Jesus is here for, I'm here for. Right? Whatever God's going to invest in, I'm going to invest in. But it's not just for the here and now. It's, it's, we're going to be generous towards God's kingdom everywhere. And that's why, for you, you can do this. Ask yourself this question. Right? How can you use yourself? How can you use your stuff for the kingdom-building mission here at Compass and beyond? Now, you need to be thinking today, how can I be more useful for the kingdom? How can I be more useful with myself and with my stuff for the glory of God? And then there's a question we have to ask our whole church. Right, this starts from your leadership and down. Right? As a church, where can we begin praying and expecting to plant the next Compass Bible Church? That's bold, isn't it? Ten months old, and we're already talking about where God's going to expand His kingdom. Right? That needs to be something that you're praying about. If that's not something on your prayer list, you need to be considering that right now. That where would God have us find a need in the hill country, in Texas, in America, somewhere where there's not a Bible teaching church? somewhere where the biblical gospel isn't being proclaimed, for us to look and reach out and say, that place needs a Bible teaching church. Why don't we take some of our people? Why don't we take some of our money? And why don't we take so much of our time and invest it somewhere else that has nothing to do with you and me? 
We have a church down a thousand miles away that's invested so much money in you, your head would spend so that you could do gospel advancement in the hill country. And there's going to come a time, and I pray that it's soon, that we're going to be given so much money that it makes our own heads spin. We're going to be given our best people, people that we've loved and we care for, and we're going to send them a long way away so that they can go give people something there that they desperately need, that we desperately need here. And it's going to be our turn to give that to someone else. And that's just because we're going to be more generous towards God's kingdom. It does start here. I mean, how in the world can we be more generous with God's kingdom when our people aren't being more generous here in New Braunfels? Because we hope that what we replicate and what we multiply is a great example of kingdom focus and not a bad example of kingdom focus. So my prayer and my hope is that through our own audacious generosity that we'll stand out in the world that needs the hope of the gospel. And when people see the way that you live out your own life, that they would glorify God and they would consider what it means to be a Christian. Pray with me. God, generosity, uh, just in so many ways, is such an, an obvious uh, concept, but, but taken into the, the church, right? taken into uh, the pulpit, can be such a divisive issue because people ask, well, you're talking about my money. You're talking about my stuff. You're talking about my things. Uh, and it was just so interesting, God, in, in your word, I mean, that's exactly what you're concerned with, is what we're doing with our stuff, what we're doing with our things. And God, we're so reminded of even the rich young ruler, who it was his stuff and his things that kept him from being in right relationship with you. And although he said he worshipped you, his heart was far from you. And God, I just pray that our church would be a shining example of faithfulness, God, of generosity. God, I pray that this week that we would take an inventory on our life, on our things, and consider how those things would be beneficial for the kingdom. God, how we can be personally generous in a way, even though we realize that it's going to take a sacrifice on our own part. It's going to take time, it's going to take money, it's going to take effort, and it may be a little bit painful, but it's necessary, and it's part of what it means to be a faithful Christian. It's going to help us with that, God, even as we end in song and worship to you, uh, that you would use the sermon, your word, to penetrate our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.